from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we follow up on a movie based on a series of articles from a humor magazine that was trying to build their brand name by slapping their name on movies, with a movie that was sponsored by a humor magazine trying to build their brand name by slapping their name on movies not unlike the other humor magazine that had been doing so, but ended up removing their name from the movie, and boy, is my brain already fried and we're not even a minute into the episode. <sighs> we're talking about Robert Downey's 1980 comedy, Up the Academy. But as always, before we get to Up the Academy, let's hit the backstory. If you know the name Robert Downey, it's likely because you know his son, Robert Downey Jr. You know, Iron Man. Yes, Robert Downey Jr. is a Nepo baby. Maybe you've already seen the documentary he made about his dad Sr. that was released on Netflix last year. But it's more likely you've never heard of Robert Downey Sr., who ironically was a junior himself, like his son. Robert Downey was born Robert John Elias Jr. in New York City in 1936, the son of a model and a manager of hotels and restaurants. His parents would divorce when he was young, and his mom would remarry while Robert was still in school. Robert Elias Jr. would take the name of his stepfather when he listed in the Army, Downey, in part because he wanted to get away from home, but he was technically too young to actually join the Army. He would invent a whole new persona for himself, and he would, by his own estimate, spend a vast majority of his military career in the stockade, where he wrote his first novel, which has still never been published. After leaving the Army, Downey would spend some time playing semi-pro baseball, not quite good enough to go pro, and spending his time away from the game writing plays he had hoped to take, if not to Broadway, at least to off-Broadway. But he would not make his mark in the arts until 1961, when Downey started to write and direct low-budget counterculture short films, starting with Ball's Bluff, about a Civil War soldier who wakes up in New York City's Central Park a century later. In 1969, he would write and direct a satirical film about the only black executive at a Madison Avenue advertising firm who, through a series of strange circumstances, becomes the head of the firm when its chairman unexpectedly passes away. Featuring a cameo by Mel Brooks, Putney Swope was the perfect anti-establishment film for the end of that decade, and the $120,000 film would gross more than $2.75 million during its successful year-and-a-half run in theaters. 1970's Pound, based on one of Downey's early plays, would be his first movie to be distributed by a major distributor, although it was independently produced outside the Hollywood system. Several dogs, played by humans, are in a pound, waiting to be euthanized. Oh, did I forget to mention it's a comedy? The film would be somewhat of a success at the time, but today it's best known as being the acting debut of the director's five-year-old son, Robert Downey Jr., although the young boy would be credited as Bob Downey. 1972's Greaser Palace was part of an early 1970s trend of trippy, acid westerns like Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo and Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. Character actor Alan Arbus plays Jesse, a man with amnesia who heals the sick, resurrects the dead, and tap dances on water on the American frontier. It would be the first movie Downey would make with a million-dollar budget. The critical consensus of the film at the time was not positive, although Jay Cox, a critic for Time magazine who would go on to be a regular screenwriter for Martin Scorsese in the 1980s, would proclaim the film to be, quote, 
the most adventurous movie of the year, unquote. The film was not a hit, and it would be decades before it would be discovered and appreciated by the next generation of cineasts. After another disappointing film, 1975's Moment to Moment, which would later be retitled Two Tons of Turquoise to Taos Tonight, in order to not be confused with the 1978 movie of the same name starring John Travolta and Lily Tomlin that really, truly stunk, Downey would take some time off from filmmaking to deal with his divorce from his first wife and to spend more time with his son Robert and daughter Allison. By 1978, Robert Downey was ready to get back to work. He would get a job quickly helping Chuck Barris write a movie version of Barris's cult television show, The Gong Show, but that was going to pay the bills with two teenagers at home. What would, though, is the one thing he hadn't done yet in movies. Direct a Hollywood film. Enter Mad Magazine. In 1978, Mad Magazine was one of the biggest humor magazines in America. I had personally discovered Mad in late 1977 when my dad, stepmom, and I were on a cross-country trip, staying with friends outside Detroit the day before my 10th birthday, when I saw an issue of Mad at the local grocery store with something Star Wars-y on the cover. I begged my dad to give me the 60 cents to buy it, and I don't think I missed another issue for the next decade. Mad's biggest competition in the humor magazine game at the time was the National Lampoon, which appealed to a more adult funny bone than Mad. In 1978, National Lampoon saw a huge boost in sales when the John Landis-directed comedy Animal House, which had the name of the magazine in the title, became an unexpected smash hit at the box office. Warner Brothers, the media conglomerate who happened to own Mad Magazine, was eager to do something similar and worked with Mad's publisher Bill Gaines to find the right script that could be molded into a Mad Magazine movie, even if, like Animal House, it wouldn't have any real connection to the magazine itself. They would find that script in The Brave Young Men of Weinberg, a comedy script by Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, a pair of comedy writers on shows like The Carol Burnett Show, The Sandy Duncan Show, The Bob Newhart Show, and The Tony Randall Show, who had never sold a movie script before. The story would follow the misadventures of four teenage boys who, for different reasons, depend on each other for their very survival when they end up at the same military academy. Now, of all the research I've done for this episode, the one very important aspect of the production I was never able to find out was exactly how Robert Downey became involved in the film. Again, he had never made a Hollywood movie before. He had only made one movie with a budget of a million dollars. His movies were satirical and critical of society in general. This was not a match made in heaven. But somehow, someone at Warner Brothers thought he'd be the right director for the film, and somehow, Downey did not disagree. Unlike Animal House, Downey and Warners didn't try to land a known commodity like John Belushi to play one of the four leads. In fact, all four of the leads, Wendell Brown, Tommy Cetera, Joseph Hutchinson, and Ralph Macchio, would all be making their feature debuts. But there would be some familiar faces in the film. Ron Liebman, who was a familiar face from such films as Slaughterhouse-Five, Juan Tonton, The Dog Who Saved Hollywood, and Norma Ray would play the head of the Academy. Tom Poston, who plays Mindy's downstairs neighbor on Mork and Mindy, plays what would now be considered to be a rather offensive gay caricature as the guy who handles the uniform of the cadets. Antonio Fargus, best known at the time as Huggy Bear on Starsky and Hutch, but who had previously worked with Downey on Putney, Swope, and Pound, played the coach, 
and Barbara Bach, who had starred as Anya Amasova in the 1977 James Bond film The Spy Who Loved Me, played one of the instructors. The $5 million film would begin production in Salina, Kansas on September 17, 1979, still using the title The Brave Young Men of Weinberg. The primary shooting location would be the St. John's Military School, which was still functioning while the film was in production, and would use most of the 144 students as extras during the shoot. The film would shoot for nine weeks without much incident, and the cast and crew would be home in time to enjoy Thanksgiving with their friends and family. Unlike Animal House, the makers of The Brave Young Men of Weinberg did attempt to tie the movie into the magazine that would be presenting the film. At the very end of the movie, the magazine's mascot, Alfred E. Newman, shows up on the side of the road to wave goodbye to people and deliver his signature line, What? Me worry? In a thought bubble that leads into the end credits. The person wearing the not-quite-realistic-looking Newman headgear, 14-year-old Scott Shapiro, was the son of the executive vice president of Worldwide Production at Warner Brothers. After the first of the year, as Downey worked on his edit of the film, the studio decided to change the title from The Brave Young Men of Weinberg to Mad Magazine Presents Up the Academy. Bill Gaines, the publisher of Mad Magazine, suggested a slightly different title. Mad Magazine completely disassociates itself from Up the Academy, but the studio decided that was too long for theater marquees but we will come back to that in a moment. Warner Brothers set a June 6, 1980 release for the film, and Downey would finish his cut of the film by the end of March. A screening on the Warner's lot in early April did not go well. Ron Liebman hated the film so much, he demanded that Warner's completely remove his name from everything associated with the film. His name would not appear on the poster, the newspaper ads, the television commercials, the lobby cards, the press kit, or even in the movie itself. Bill Gaines would hate it too, so much that in fact he did really try to disassociate the magazine from the film. In a 1983 interview with the Comics Journal, Gaines would explain without much detail that there were a number of things that he had objected to in the script that he was told would not be shot and would not end up in the final film, that were shot and did end up in the final film. But he wouldn't be able to get the magazine's name off the movie before it opened in theaters. Another problem with researching how well films did in 1980 is that you really only have two sources for grosses, a variety and The Hollywood Reporter, and they didn't always report national grosses every week, depending on outside factors. It just hadn't become the national sport it since has since, say, 1983. So when Up the Academy opened in theaters on June 6, we don't have a full idea of how many theaters it played in nationwide or how much it grossed. The closest thing we do have is a variety listing of top movies of the week based on a limited selection of showcase theaters in the top 20 markets. So we know that the film played at seven showcase screens in New York City that weekend, grossing $175,000, and in Los Angeles on 15 showcase screens, grossing $149,000. But we also know, thanks to newspaper ads in the New York Times and Los Angeles Times, that the film was playing in 11 theaters in the New York metro area and in 30 theaters in the Los Angeles metro area. So those listed grosses are merely a snapshot and not the whole picture. According to Variety's limited tracking of the major market showcase theaters for the week, Up the Academy was the second highest grossing film of the week, bringing in $729,000 from 82 theaters. 
And according to their chart's side notes, this usually accounted for about 25% of the movie's national gross, if a film is playing in wide release around the entire country. In its second week up, the Academy would place ninth in those showcase theater listings with $377,000 from 87 theaters. But by the time Variety did bring back the proper national grosses in the film's third week of release, there would be no mention of Up the Academy in those listings, as Warner's, by this time, had bigger frisch to handle. Namely, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of the Stephen King novel The Shining and Bronco Billy, their Clint Eastwood movie for the year. In that showcase theater's listings, though, Up the Academy had fallen to 16th place with $103,000 from 34 theaters. In fact, there is no publicly available record of how many theaters Up the Academy ever played in during its theatrical run, and it wouldn't be until the 1981 Warner Brothers 10K annual filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission that anyone would learn Up the Academy had earned $10 million from American movie theaters. If studios get about 55% of the box office grosses and rental fees, that would put the $5 million film in a very good position to be profitable depending on how much was spent on P&A prints and advertising. The film wasn't an Animal House-level hit, but it wasn't exactly the bomb many people have painted it to be. After Up the Academy, two of the actors, Wendell Brown and Joseph Hutchinson, would never act in another movie. Although billed as Hutch Parker, the latter would produce six X-Men-related movies between 2013 and 2019, including Logan. Tommy Cetera would make two more movies until he left acting in 1988. And Ralph Macchio would, of course, go on to play Daniel LaRusa, the Karate Kid, in a career-defining role that he's still playing nearly 40 years later. Robert Downey would make another wacky comedy called Moonbeam in 1982. Co-written with Richard Belzer, Moonbeam would feature a fairly interesting cast, including Zach Norman, Tammy Grimes, Michael J. Pollard, Liz Torres, and Mr. Belzer, and tell the story of a New York cable television station that becomes world-famous when they accidentally bounce their signal off the moon. But the film would not get released until October 1986, in one theater in New York City for one week. It couldn't even benefit from being able to promote Robert Downey Jr., who in the ensuing years had started to build an acting career by being featured in John Sayles' Baby It's You, Rich Kirch's Tough Turf, John Hughes's Weird Science, and the Rodney Dangerfield movie Back to School, as well as being a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live for a year. There would be sporadic work in television working on shows like Matlock and The Twilight Zone, but what few movies Robert Downey could get made would be pale shadows of his earlier, edgier work. Even with his son regularly taking supporting roles in his dad's movies to help the old man out, films like Rented Lips and Too Much Sun would be critically panned and ignored by audiences. His final movie as a writer and director, Hugo Poole, would gross just $13,000 when it was released in December 1997, despite having a cast that included Patrick Dempsey, Richard Lewis, Malcolm McDowell, Alyssa Milano, Kathy Moriarty, and Sean Penn, along with Junior. Downey would also continue to act in other directors' movies, including two written and directed by one of his biggest fans, Paul Thomas Anderson. Downey would play Burke, the studio manager in Boogie Nights, and the WDKK show director in Magnolia. Anderson adored Downey so much, the Oscar-nominated filmmaker would sit down with Downey for a four-part conversation filmed for the Criterion Channel in 2013. Robert Downey would pass away in July of 2021, a curious footnote in the history of cinema.
mostly because of the superstar he sired. Most of his movies are hard to find on video and nearly impossible to find on streaming surfaces outside of a wonderful two-disc DVD set issued by Criterion's Eclipse Specialty label and several titles streaming on the Criterion channel. Outside of Up the Academy, which is available to rent or purchase from Amazon, Apple TV, and several other streaming surfaces, you can find Putney Swope, Greaser's Palace, and Too Much Sun on several of the more popular streaming services, but the majority of them are completely missing in action. And of course, as I said before, you can learn more about Robert Downey in Senior, a documentary streaming on Netflix produced by Robert Downey Jr., where the son recounts the life and career of his recently passed father, alongside Paul Thomas Anderson, Alan Arkin, and to make a producer, Norman Lear. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon when episode 107 on John Landis's underrated 1985 comedy Into the Night is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies we've covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 